All right. Welcome, everybody, to this month's episode of Books and Bourbon. I have the distinct pleasure of having a wonderful local author of my state of Kentucky to join me today, Lee Mandelo. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I'm excited to talk with you about your books. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. yeah so Lee is, um, is an author here in Kentucky, um, has two books, one book's out, two coming out soon in the next couple of years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so which, um, Summer, Summer Sun, sorry, excuse me, um, is come that I'm going to be our feature book of next month for April of this month, actually. And I'm excited to talk about it. So um, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about it, Lee, and go from there. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Summer Sons was my debut novel, first one, exciting. Yeah. Uh, and I think the tagline we've usually been using is like if Fast and the Furious met the secret history with a little Faulkner in there. Yes, so I love that. Yeah, a lot of <laughs> codependent boys making bad choices in the process of coming to terms with their sexuality. There's ghosts, literal and figurative. It's a fun time, I think. <laughs> it is, it is. I really, I had... Um... I was looking for like upcoming authors and your Feed the Silence, which you have coming out later, um, popped up and I looked in further and I was like, well, that one sounds really good. And then I saw that you had Summer Suns out. So I read the uh, biopsy and I was like, well, that sounds just like right up my alley. So I was very excited to, to read that and I very much enjoyed it. And um, what were some of your inspirations behind writing it for? Yeah, so Summer Suns has that, the way I think a lot of debuts do a uh, semi-autobiographical <laughs> like element yeah. to it where you're kind of working through some of your own histories particularly for me queer masculinity being someone from rural Kentucky and that's where I spent most of my life accepting some wandering like overseas for a, a yeah. degree <laughs> but I think part of that also is in wanting to write about the kinds of queer men who live in the South mm -hmm. uh, and tell those kinds of stories because they're not very commonly told or explored. Yeah. So I think I've seen a lot of feedback about Sam in particular from people who adore him or like, yeah, we've all dated Sam, but I never <laughs> see him in a book like as a romantic interest in that way. Yeah. So I think that was also one of the, the joys in hindsight now that it's been out for a couple of years is seeing how people respond to seeing those kinds of stories out in the world. And it also has been fun to see the crossover audience because from the one side, it's like a queer literary coming of age with a lot of grief and stuff of that nature. But from the other, it's like a fun genre book because I do read and write in both. So you'll get very different audience responses depending on sort of what flavor of book people presume it to be. And that's really entertaining for me yeah. as the person who wrote it. <laughs> it is. It, I really enjoyed it. Um, I grew up in Oregon, but I've lived here in Kentucky uh, for the last Oh, five years now, I think. And you're very right. As you know, I have been a game on myself and having a lot of friends here in the community that um, I've been like, I'm sending this book to you. Like, I think you would really enjoy it. And because <laughs> it, it is, it's very, like, you don't see a lot of queer Southern Gothic movie books out there. Yeah. And <laughs> and I, I really enjoyed that part. And um, one of the things I kept really enjoying about this book was one, not giving too much away, it's like, I really want, when I heard it was had a little bit of like sci-fi supernatural to it, I kept kind of thinking, 
where he kept talking about packs. I kept waiting for like werewolves to show up. I don't know. I've, maybe I've watched too much Supernatural or something or <laughs> recently. Or it's, but I, I really like that undertone that you had that whole pack mentality of how they work, move together throughout um, their group and their friendships. And <laughs> yeah, I think that's such a big part of like homosociality as a thing. Like, yeah. That is in a way how a lot of boys treat each other, even <laughs> straight, quote unquote. Yeah men who have a lot of intimacy build that sort of family space together for better or for worse sometimes and I think queer people also do it because that's where you find your people and I don't think it's an accident like the Feed Them Silence coming out has stuff to do with wolves a lot of the early responses have been people being like it's interesting that queer people always talk about werewolves or wolves or packs or these (laughs) chosen structures and I'm like I wonder why that is yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's a good dynamic to kind of examine Mm -hmm. um, that you know there is that you know your chosen families and your packs that you because a lot of times you know in the community we have choose our own families and out there and it's a sad reality but it's it's, you know it's good to see that more um being shown that that is out there and just like a normal type book that you know so much centered on that um and so like you said you so feed the silence um you said that has some wolf mentalities do you see any uh, differences or similarities between the two books that you have so far or <laughs> yeah. so they are I would say wildly different yeah. and that's been actually really fun for me to see oh, folks who maybe hadn't read short fiction or criticism or academic work my other stuff before had only read Summer Sons and I think had expected maybe the same kind of book uh, but Feed Them Silence is way more of a like cerebral near future science fiction that makes you feel terrible summer suns has a hopeful ending and silence i would say does not okay and i think that was one of the fun marketing challenges for the team working on the book with me was how to really telegraph to people that they were about to get a a different kind of art project than what they got the first time yeah Uh, and then the as of yet unannounced so i can't tell you the title yet even though i know it it'll be soon the second novella that'll be coming out in 2024 is like a historical Appalachian monster fucking tea for tea horror romance. We'll put oh, it yeah. that way. <laughs> so We're kind of coming back around again. Yeah. Silence is me doing some of my academic theory and also depression about the state of the world. <laughs> like yeah. <in> a book. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It sounds like I look forward to reading it. Cause yeah. you know, I like the, like the authors that, you know, don't, try to box yourself into one particular area and get, you know, allow you some uh, freedom, some creative freedom there. Um, what type of research have you, did you do for like, both of these books? Cause obviously there's some great history uh, in summer suns and it sounds like there's going to be some interesting stuff in feed them silence. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think part of that comes from being an academic as it is, you know, <laughs> I tend to do a lot of research on things or just naturally by the nature of my job that I am getting a doctorate in gender studies, but my background is in critical theory in an English and contemporary literature department. <laughs> so I just read all the time, which yes. is not uncommon for a writer. Right. But I also do a lot with pop culture media and visual art. So I feel like I'm getting all those influences part of my research also. 
for summer suns, a lot of it is sort of backgrounding, which I think is like the Easter eggs for people who are looking for it. Like you can yeah. read the book just as a fun, queer, like spooky mystery, but yeah. the text itself is doing something different than the characters are with things like race and class yeah. in the South. There's a reason that it's set at Vanderbilt's and that like, I don't know that it's much of a spoiler to say that one of the worst people in the book is an, a wealthy cis white straight woman who's from yeah. a previously implied to be family of enslavers like that is where the money comes from in the yeah. south that's where the ghosts come from in the south yeah it has a terrible history and part of i think being a white author who's from kentucky and the south is writing about whiteness which is something that comes up a lot in academic studies of race mm -hmm. but i think is something pop culture writing particularly by white people even who mean well lags behind on is thinking about whiteness not as sort of a neutral base but as a racial formation yeah and what that means for characters like andrew who never thinks about it not once so the text can show you that he's really stupid about this but he doesn't know it and it's yeah. kind of that play that's my research coming into the the four there and then with Feed Them Silence, I have an essay coming out from Tor.com with the book, like shortly, that's on some of the research into animal ethnography and multi-species ethnography that fed into why I wrote the novella in the first place. Uh, some Donna Haraway working with like, what does it mean to be in kin with non-human animals as human animals and how bad of a job we tend to do with that, particularly in Western hard sciences, quote unquote, research that really is based on an assumption that animals are sort of mechanical objects still yeah. to this day, and that has the whole mind-body dualism thing going on instead of understanding that it's nature and culture at the same time, yes. always, they're not separable. So I think that's the research backgrounding there. And just reading about wolves, you're going to write about them. You kind of have to know things <laughs> yeah. about them yeah, rather yeah. than what you as like a child read in like Julia the Wolves. So, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I, you know, I find it very interesting that when we were talking about the race that of the ghosts of what they really are in the South, like when Andrew first walked into uh, Dr. Trost's house plantation you know a former plantation house and mm -hmm. felt the energy is like that's something that's really not talked about as much especially when it comes to just base you know this so southern gothic style writing that so the really the ghosts that <laughs> probably are haunting the majority of these houses that yeah. it's <laughs> And it's the yeah. history that we just don't want to look at yeah. in a lot yeah. of ways and are actively outlawing talking about yes, because it's exactly. uncomfortable yeah. and it is still affecting today. <laughs> it, yeah. it hasn't stopped. It's just changed forms. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. That's just, important today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's very important. That's kind of brings me up to the next question. You know, I have jump into a question, but um, my recent episode, we were talking about book bands, and I was thinking about this book, and I was like, oh, yeah, this probably wouldn't make it very far in Florida <laughs> or any of the book bands. But so how does how does that make you feel that you, this type of book would probably end up on a band list someday or how yeah. you feel you could fight back or anything like that? So, yeah. I mean, I think so. I have double stress on this one as someone who works in higher education yep. <laughs> and also <laughs> a writer. Yeah. So I have a lot of feelings about 
the like decade long, I would say this point, rise of fascism and the far right again in the US, like it never went away, just to be yeah. clear on that one. Exactly. But the really sharp increase that we're seeing is at the backlash in a lot of ways post the Obama presidency, which is kind of funny as that was such a neoliberal presidency in a lot of ways. That's politics, deep talk. But yes. <laughs> in other ways, I think I feel... Okay, backing up a little. As a queer artist who studies a lot of work from the 90s, who was, grew up in the 90s, I can't be surprised by any of this, right? I think that that's something that I feel bad about for a lot of my students and Gen Z queers mm -hmm. who kind of came of age in a moment where they could believe the propaganda for a split second that the U.S. was progressive and liked queer people, which yes. has simply never fucking been the case ever. But there was a hot minute where you could sort of pretend that like the love is love discourse was real. Yeah. Uh, but I think that what we've seen is that all that that said was if you can assimilate really well to the point where we can't tell you're gay and you don't do gay stuff, you can survive. Exactly. It never meant anything else. And going back to the 90s, we can really see models of how queer artists were silenced, defunded, the stuff with everyone from David Wojnarowicz on to not being able to participate in national arts funding if you were queer because of the, you know, filthiness of your work, yes. even if it wasn't sexual. Like, that's my lifetime still. Yeah. So I hate that it's happening, but I'm also like, ah, yes, more of the same. <laughs> like, <laughs> particularly being the kind of queer who is also trans, who isn't a good, uh, we'll say, mascot for that kind of, like, <laughs> soft, acceptable assimilation behavior. Like, that's right. not my deal, and that's not the kind of art that I make. So I hate it, but I'm also, like, kind of bring it on, you know, here we are. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's, and I wonder with, like, the digital age, and I've noticed that they're starting to try to go after that as well, mm -hmm. that I was wondering how long that would take them, but it's, like, it's, you know, it was harder to find books that were banned, you know, we would always find, I would always find a way, you know, whenever my parents would tell me, you, you shouldn't be reading the book, you're too young. Well, I'm going to read that book. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, you're not going to know about it, but I'm going to find a way. And with digital copies, it's, you know, it's so much easier that I feel like that's, you know, it's a, the pushing maybe even to make it even more easier to find them and to like try to go after them for, but. <laughs> That, that does change things, I think. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see, particularly given, especially, you know, in a lot of ways, the kids are all right. Like, you're seeing school walkouts and these things. The one concern that I have is how much, like, conservative rhetoric and turfy rhetoric has gotten kind of co-opted and the edges sanded off. And it's been forwarded to a group of young people who think they're being really progressive, yeah. but are kind of just repeating the party line of like yeah. anti-sex work, anti-liberation, really conservative ideas about what queerness means at the same time as they are trying to protest these more visibly fascist movements. So yeah. that's my like, go read your history, read some queer stuff, talk yeah. to your queer elders. <laughs> like they know why it's bad to say we want cops at pride. We sure fucking don't. <laughs> like that's, you know. 100% agree there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's actually, I'm, in the middle of my master's or starting just started my master's and that was actually one of my topics that i'm writing for a paper right now is the how some of them on the left are co-opting some conservative I'm like what what, what y'all doing no mm -hmm. like, it's, uh, it's, but it's the same thing i've seen it before happen before and it's just, just yeah. like 
well, it's what's old is new know, again. Yeah, you go back to like the Mattachine <laughs> Society in the 50s being yes. like, no, we have to be polite. We can't even kiss or they'll be mad at us. Yeah. So we've tried it before, guys. It doesn't work. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Just be, yes. It's, yeah. We're all as a group. Stop trying to do, you know, segregate our own. <laughs> We're all in this together right now. Um, Next question is, so what authors um, have inspired and influenced you over the years? Yeah, so I thought about this one a while because it's always a different answer. You know, like, <laughs> one of I thought that. about most recently. Um, and I think one of my top line answers, I'll give two, two people. Uh, one is Alexander Chi, who is an amazing novelist, essayist, teacher, community leader, queer writer, uh, because he has been posting on his Instagram stories instead of going to AWP right now, like advice from people's questions. And it's always so deeply thoughtful and comes from a space of experience in a lot of fields of writing and also as like a queer Korean American writer that he's coming from a very specific perspective as someone who did not easily find a place like in the literary market at the beginning yeah. of his career. And now can be someone who mentors and shepherds younger writers and whose work is just phenomenally complex emotionally in a way that I think is really important, especially right now, given everything else. And like his uh, nonfiction book, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, just fantastic essay <laughs> collection. And one of the pieces in that is about novel writing and it's just a numbered list of like emotions and tactics and thoughts that kind of works like a prose poem, but also a writing guide. Excellent. And I like to come back to that between projects when I'm feeling like deranged and as if I'll never make art again. <laughs> that is the after phase of every book that you write. <laughs> so I've been coming back to that as recently finishing the second develop project. So that's top of mind, I would say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the other is Octavia Butler. As, you know, speculative fiction goes, Black feminist writer, just amazing. And I have saved, like, an image that I keep pulled up a lot when I work. So I'll read it again. That's from her paper, notebooks. That's a note she wrote herself, and it's in a lot of different colors and sizes of ink. It's emotional drive. Strive always and always at all times, always for intensity. Cold or hot, hard or soft, gut-wrenching or deeply stilling, utter intensity. And I think that's the vibe. Right, like you don't read an Octavia Butler novel or story and put it down un unmoved in some way. And I think she was one of the first science fiction writers who I read as a teenager who really made me think like, oh shit, it's not just Isaac Asimov. Like we can do this. Yeah. This is what can happen in these stories. And from there, I you know went on to read Ursula Gwynn, Joanna Russ, other people. But I think Octavia Butler will stay like top of mind, go back, reread, feel that inspiration from how sharp her work was. Yeah, yeah she she's definitely in my top five for sure. Yeah. And I, I just love her and her work is just fantastic. And she have a friend that opened up uh, a bookshop in Pasadena called Octavia's Bookshelf and inspired off of and <laughs> that focuses on people of color books and everything and so yeah I was like I can't wait to go visit it because it's such great influence <laughs> I think I've uh, seen on Instagram that, yes. which is delightful <laughs> yeah. yes exactly <laughs> um what was an early experience where you learned language had power 
I'm one of those kids who learned to read so early. I don't remember not knowing how to do it. <laughs> so that's like one of those. <laughs> that I get. <laughs> also, I think, as I mentioned before, growing up in the 90s in an evangelical family in rural Kentucky and knowing from a very early age that at the least I was queer and what that meant was probably death. Like it was a very sharp set of ways of knowing that words can do things when you're in that kind of repressive environment. Like you understand very immediately at a very young age, even if you couldn't articulate it, that stories have power because they've convinced all of these people of this horrible thing. Yeah. Uh, That like you can't have that kind of cultish violence without text. And then you get a little older and find stories about people like you. And that's a whole nother different thing where it's realizing, oh, this is a possibility. Like, I wouldn't exist as a person without the kinds of stories and narratives that I got to have from queer writers throughout the forever. Yeah. So the balance there, I think. And they're fun. It's reading yeah. is fun. I was a weird kid. <laughs> <laughs> I am right there with you. And yeah, that's, yeah, I don't, re- I can think back and say, I don't remember a time where I never had a book in my hand somewhere near. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was. Doing thinking back about those uh like reading contests in elementary school that we used to have. And I was like, mm-hmm. pretty sure I won a few of those just because I just couldn't put books down. It didn't matter. <laughs> and I think even today, like a lot of parents don't pay attention, thank God, to what's in a book. Yeah. <laughs> They'll watch a movie to see if that's got something untoward in it. But like they're not paying attention. And if the cover of the book doesn't have two men kissing on it, they don't know anything. Exactly. <laughs> so yes. <laughs> that's an excellent point, which also kind of cracks me up. It's like all these that are trying out there to ban books. It's like, have you read the books? Because some of the things your kids are reading are nowhere near as bad as some of these books that you're trying. <laughs> that mm-hmm. yeah. So just like, oh goodness gracious. Oh, that's a whole other story though. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of books to read, do you have it to be read, read file? Or Always. Files? So yeah. many. And I think yeah. that's also the balance of academic, critic, and fiction writer. There's like <laughs> multiple files of different things at all times. I pulled out my current like stuff I just bought. <laughs> Who knows if that means I'll read it soon again? Yeah, right, exactly. Um, I've got that. <laughs> Brontes Purnell's Johnny Would You Love Me If My Dick Were Bigger which a friend loves I've read a bunch of Purnell's stuff but I haven't read that one which is one of his earlier books so (laughs) going back Um, Casey Lehman's How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America great essayist just didn't have that collection Uh, a reprint of John Retchie's City of Night because I realized I've read about it in probably a hundred like essays and scholarly articles on queer men's fiction and I've never read the book oh. <laughs> and that's one of those moments where you become aware if I'm going to talk about this I do have to read it <laughs> yes. at some point it's, it's become relevant to me in that yeah way. it's like it keeps popping up fine yeah. I'll read it <laughs> and then an academic book just came out edited by James Welker it's queer transfigurations boys love media in Asia because I watch a lot of BL broadly speaking because yeah. we have gay TV in the U.S. that way. And I think, you know, to quote Bong Joon-ho, if more people would climb over that one inch tall barrier of subtitles, there's a ton of gay TV out there that's doing amazing stuff that we don't get to see here because our market is so captured by the Disney of it all. 
We yeah. simply don't have good TV media for the most part, with a couple of exceptions anymore. Like Last of Us doing great, phenomenal. Yes. It's also an adaptation. Yeah. Like it's still not an original show in that way. So yeah. I think that's my, my shout out for a lot of the narrative I've been consuming in that way. Yeah. And I think it also speaks some to that, again, the America is so progressive for queers propaganda <laughs> that clearly only we can make good queer media. And it's like, no, guys, we actually yeah. do a terrible job for the most yeah. part. Like, there's yeah. so much good stuff, <laughs> particularly if you want to see men actually kiss and have sex and hug and be intimate with each other in a way that is really startling in a good way if you're yeah. used to American television. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and that's. I was talking with my, my mom about this actually yesterday, telling her she needs to watch The Last of Us, and I was like, it's sad that it took a post-apocalyptic show about a video game that <laughs> have one of the best queer stories out there that was just simple and it wasn't. Yeah, it, yeah, <laughs> it was hard to describe to her, but I was like, just watch it and you'll you'll see what I say you'll when see. yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah so it's like it was just simple love which is what it is I mean it's just everyday love it's like you see everyday love of everybody else and that yeah didn't have any major drama other than the world ending but you know you take that as a different drama (laughs) just get to be in the story yes exactly yeah just a part of it and I really enjoyed that um what impact do you hope your writing has on the world or communities or so I think I'm going to like steal a phrase from Ocean Vong, who's another poet and writer whom I love, who's also a great teacher. I wish my pedagogy was as good, but it's not. I can own that. <laughs> uh, that I really don't like representation discourse at all, because I think it focuses on a very flat surface and not actually what's happening in the texts the way yeah. we do it these days. And the framing that he uses is that he's more concerned with presence And that's also where I kind of settle. It's not really about that glossy surface mirror. Can I see a person who looks just like a perfect version of like a queer man? It's how many people are making the media? Who's behind the scenes? Who's telling these stories? How much humanity are we allowed to have? Because I think one of the things that connects all of my work is that all my lovely queer characters are very human and messy and they do things wrong. with other people because that is what it is to be human is to understand that when you make a mistake which you will especially if you care about ethics and social justice and community you're gonna have to make up for that somehow and also sometimes we just disagree with each other and that's okay too actually like when it gets down to it sometimes two different accommodations clash and what do we do with that in community and i think sarah shulman's recent like history of act up in new york i let the record show did a really great job on the political end of being like sometimes you hate the people that you work with Mm -hmm. but you need and we can each do our own thing but we need to learn to work together and sometimes forgive people for saying things off the cuff that sucked yeah like it doesn't mean that they didn't suck yeah not have known better and I think that especially with young people and the way that they are very unfortunately like whole lives on social media from day one I don't expect a 13 year old to have a perfect grasp of power and systemic oppression (laughs) I don't think we should yell at 13 year olds for things they tweeted 10 years ago that's (laughs) fucked up so I think that's part of my whole goal is to be a bit more of a presence and to deal with mess in a way that I hope is productive. Yeah. And also sex. Yes. Write more, write more sex. In our yes, podcast. absolutely. 
<laughs> yeah, I bet I like that a lot. Um, so final question I have from one of our listeners, Greg, who wrote in, um, if you could tell your young writing self anything, what would it be? <laughs> Ooh, I think it would probably be that it's like going to work out. <laughs> like you're, you're eventually going to write a book that you're proud of and that other people seem to resonate with. And it's going to take forever and it's a lot of work, but that's making art. And you're going to meet a lot of great people along the way because art is not a zero sum game, especially not writing. Like you want all your friends to succeed because when their books do well, even on a purely mercenary standpoint, <laughs> yours also do because readers don't read one book and then go away. Yeah. They read a book <laughs> and then read everyone who blurbed its books. Like they read a book and see who else you tweet at. Like they read a book and look at your Instagram friends and see, read yeah. their books. So I think it's important to remember it's a community and you're not competing with anyone. Exactly. <laughs> I think, yeah. Like I said, one of the ways I found came across to was I was searching up and coming authors and books and uh, free the freedom silence popped up and I was like, well, okay, that sounds good. And then found your other. And I was like, well, all right, let's start there. And there we go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Lee. This was such a delight. I'm so glad I got to talk to you. And is there, you know, any way people wanted to reach out to you or find you or anything you want to promote, feel free to. <laughs> uh, about to be on tour, but that will be done, I think, by the time the episode comes out. So at that point, I would say some will be archived. I think the uh, talk Clay McLeod Chapman and I are doing at Books Are Magic in New York will be streamed and archived. So that'll be watchable by then. Hopefully it's great. Hasn't happened yet. Don't know. <laughs> I trust Clay. I think it'll be wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and also just Lee Mandel on Twitter and Instagram. The classic, pretty easy to find. <laughs> Perfect. Well, again, thank you so much. I appreciate you for coming, joining us today. <laughs> thank you. Everybody. I hope you enjoyed that interview that I had there with Lee Mandel. I just want to thank him again for joining us on this month's episode of Books in Bourbon. It was an absolute pleasure to sit down and talk with you, Lee, and look forward to your upcoming books that are coming out and seeing what is in the future for you. Um, those of you that are into these type of new novels, I usually am not um, not big haven't ever been a big sci-fi reader i like sci-fi books but this one was definitely um a page turner for sure and i really enjoyed it so if you enjoy sci-fi or queer gothic novels southern gothic novels especially this is definitely a book for you um and if you're really not into that it has a great story behind it um some deep things i highly recommend going to lee's website and reading his um, note that he sent out with every, to everybody to get this book published. It explains a lot more in detail about this book and backstory and some of his story behind it. So it gives it an even more deeper understanding and deeper story to what this was really going on in that book. Um, now, moving into some bourbon tasting time. Um, decided to stick with the Willett family this uh, month. I know I did a will at the pot still last month, um, featuring all the women bourbon, but decided to stick with the same one and um, give Old Bardstown a try. Now, this is a bottled and bond. Um, for those of you that do not know, bottled and bond 
um, basically just means that to be labeled the bottom one, the whiskey must be the product of one distillation season and one distiller at a single distillery, aged and federally bonded warehouse under U.S. government supervision for at least four years, and it must be bottled exactly 100 proof. Additionally, the bottle and bond label must clearly identify the distillery where it was distilled, where it was bottled, if different. And this one um, was bottled in Bardstown. Again, one favorite little towns here in Kentucky that has some great distilleries around it. Um, it is it is 100 proof, so it does meet that qualification, obviously. And it's done in four years, um, and it is a 72% corn mash with 13% rye and 15% malted barley. Um, so going in, I know it's going to have some heat to it with that rye and that malted barley in it, and also being 100 proof, so it's a high proof higher heat bourbon. Um, an initial tasting and smelling of it, it has, you can definitely pick up the caramel, obviously one of the good qualities it has to it. There's some molasses to it as well. A little bit of mint, which is interesting. And something that I'm not a big fan of, and this could be because of the heat that goes with it, is that it has a little bit of a cough syrupy smell to it, like a little cherry cough syrup, which not a big fan of that. Um, and that could be just because it's a younger bourbon. Um, four years is pretty young for it. And you know, it's something that they've are still working on, still perfecting out of it. So it's not a fairly old bourbon in terms of labels and distillery time. So it's, it's young, um, and there's a tasting on it. There's not a lot of depth to it. I will say at the very beginning, there is some heat, but it does calm down as it goes hits the back of the throat. So that is a pleasantness to it. Um, excuse me, sorry, a little more heat. Apparently it scratched that throat. Um, I can pick up the caramel taste on it. There's some butterscotch as well. Um, has some oak there's some oakiness to it you know it's it's got some spice a little a little cinnamony too as well and that could again be the heat from it as well um but it's not one of those bourbons that is a uh, depth of flavor like you can't take a taste a lot of layers of flavor to it 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 is a low cost bourbon um and the Fifteen to twenty dollar range, most often. Um, it's a cute bottle, actually. I kind of like the bottles of it, and it's it's an old time sour mash that they use for it. Um, I, I like it. You know, wouldn't it wouldn't be my first choice for bourbons right now. Um, it it could use some work to it, and maybe as they continue to distill it and mess with the mash a little bit it could develop some more flavor as it goes along um but it's you know for a higher heat bottled and bond it's one of the better ones that i've had not a, like i said bottled and bond is that is that 100 proof so it does have that high heat to it but it, it's a good bourbon i you know for its costs you're not gonna break the bank on it it probably would be better I would probably mix it 
with something else, maybe some lemonade, um, something sweeter. Uh, it might make a very good Manhattan or um, an old fashioned because it does have that heat to it. And has that, <laughs> the cherry cough syrup smell to it. So maybe if you get past that, that the cherry pick stuff is in the, in the old fashions that are being used, that might be a good combination with it. Uh, so I might give that a try, come back. Um, I do plan on doing a June episode that has some bourbon cocktails. Since we haven't had a chance to really talk about that yet um, over this last year. So definitely think this would be a bourbon that I will experiment with. Um, probably like a good summer one. Uh, because with the heat that it does have, as it start to get warmer, probably better in the fall or uh, winter months to warm me up. Um, but yeah, I'd give it a try again. Um, you know, maybe over the next couple of years, it'll it'll get a little bit better. But you know, it's not a not a you know, horrible tasting bourbon out there. So I can <laughs> it's drinkable <laughs> and probably mixable. So give it. I'll give that a try and let y'all know what that is. Um, again, it's uh, will it's distillery old bardstown bottled and bond bourbon it is under u.s government supervision for that um which is an interesting thing but yeah so that is this month's bourbon tasting and i hope you have enjoyed it and i hope you have a chance to check out um summer sun's book by lee mandelo seriously it's Fabulous read. Great story. Um, it's dark. Obviously, it's dark in places. And it's got some twists and turns to it. But, you know, it's a different novel than what I've read. And probably most people have read out there. And, you know, it's got, I, I highly enjoyed it. And I really do look forward to reading his uh, next book coming out. And what else Lee has in store for us um, in the future. So, I right. hope everybody has a wonderful rest of the month. Just a warning, next month coming up is Derby Month. So I am going to feature, shockingly, I'm going to ring in Woodford. Um, I'm not ringing in the regular one, but I'm going to ring in the double oaks. Um, so we, I give Woodford a chance since it is the official Derby sponsor. So we'll give that a try um, coming up for next month. We'll talk some horses with some people see what's going down and just yeah have some fun for next month's episode so in the meantime go check out some bourbons check out some books let me know what you think of the show if you have any suggestions of bourbons you want me to try any books you want me to read you know, talk about you want to come on the show yourself please feel free to shoot me an email at the books and bourbon at gmail.com you can also find me on twitter at books and bourbon i'm on instagram as well and when I remember, I'm on TikTok. Um, not very often, but I do remember that sometimes I'm there. Um, otherwise, yeah, find me on Twitter, Instagram, email, any of those. And hope you enjoy this episode and look forward to talking to you next month. Have a good one, everybody. <laughs>